Well, Merry Christmas, Drew North. Last, so thank you, last, last service of 2021. And I had a decision to make. I could do a Christmas sermon or we could continue plowing through the book of Hebrews. Turns out I really didn't have to make the decision because God kind of chose a sermon that actually is still Christmassy, though it's not exactly a Christmas sermon, and you'll soon see why. We're going to start off with somewhat of a heavier note. The Surgeon General, which is it's called the, he's the nation's doctor, he's an elected official. Uh, he put out, him and his team put out a large, uh, a large report that said there is a youth mental health crisis among us. And the New York Times reported on it, and they said, what are the causes? Well, they say that young people are bombarded with messages from the media and popular culture that erode their sense of self-worth, telling them they are not good-looking enough, popular enough, smart enough, or rich enough, Dr. Murphy wrote in the report. Quote, that comes as progress on legitimate and distressing issues like climate change, income inequality, racial injustice, the opioid epidemic, and gun violence. Feels too slow. I'm not sure exactly if that, that's a complete sentence, but you get the gist here. Uh, this report suggests that people your age, Gen Z, uh, your demographic, are struggling with a mental health crisis in, in proportions that have yet to be seen ever at least as long as we've been measuring it. Now, what is a mental health crisis? And are, are these issues that they lay out, are these really the primary things at the surface? I don't know. And, and they don't know either. But here's what I do know. Whether or not we're able to agree upon what the issues are and what the causes are, we can both agree that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. And I know enough to be your pastor that even though some of you aren't dealing with some of the things that they recommend here or suggest, you do either yourself suffer or you know someone who's going through stuff like this. In fact, just the other day, Kristen and I were uh, going to the Barnes & Noble in the town center on our date night. That's how exciting we are. We go to the bookstore, which is fun, actually. It was enjoyable. Uh, but there is a, a lot of, uh, of ambulatory and medical personal, personnel staff at the Barnes & Nobles. And of course, you know, we want to find out what's going on. So we just kind of meander our way to see what's happening. And they're wheeling out a guy. And the guy's on the stretcher, and the guy at the front is radioing back to whoever he's talking to, and it says, uh, overdose in the men's room. I gave him, a, some, we gave him some Narcan, and he's, you know, being pulled back to, you know, consciousness or whatever. So as this guy's being wheeled out, we're hearing him talk about him, and he's right behind him, and then he puts his shirt over his face so that no one can see him. He's embarrassed, of course. He's a young guy, I don't know, 20s perhaps. He wasn't that old, but... He's just one example that I've personally seen that medical staff and people all around our area can say, yes, people are addicted, people are struggling. In fact, someone who shall remain nameless who goes to our church sent me an email and said, as a medical professional, I have seen so many cases of young people, high school age, that's why they're sending me an email, who are coming in with suicidal ideation or depression, or anxiety, or the desire to hurt themselves. And so they're being brought in by their parents and their friends to be dealt with. And they said, they, I plead with you, please talk to them about this. Please talk to the students about this. There's help and there's support, and on and on it goes. So again, these guys are saying things that you probably are aware of. And it's being written about and reported about on a national scale for everyone to recognize there's an issue. Let's resolve it. And of course, the answer is, well, how do you actually resolve it? What's a Christian to do in particular? And if you're a Christian and you've struggled with 
depression, suicide, anxiety, all those other things, uh, you know that there is real and intense pain that comes with being in this world. And even though Christians do believe that Jesus has been installed as king, all of us also know that there are really painful, difficult issues that we have to wrestle with. And so tonight, we're going to figure out, at least from what, Christian, uh, what, the, what the scriptures teach, about how to work our way through some of these really heavy issues, all the while believing, hey, Jesus the king has been born and he's been given to us. How is Jesus king? And at the same time, how are there school shootings happening? And how is it true that some guy's going to be mowing down people in a parade? How is it true that you could have some guy, I don't know if you guys remember, just, a, just not too long ago, that guy in Las Vegas who was shooting at people from that window down at the country music festival. How does how that work in a, in a world where all of us who are Christians would say, look, Jesus reigns. He's the king. He's the ruler. How does that fit together? Well, tonight's text is going to help us. And if I could summarize it, here's what I'm going to say in a nutshell. Christians endure hardships like this. We're going to, and by the way, hardships are guaranteed to happen for us. Hardships are guaranteed. You cannot avoid them. We can endure them, though. We can make our way through them by focusing on the now and not yet aspects of Jesus' kingdom. We're going to spend some time unpacking that and recognizing that while we are thinking about the now and not yet, we have an opportunity in the here and now to see more people saved. This is part of what God is doing in the world right now. It's not going to be easy, though. All right, with that said, that's enough preface. Let's jump into this tonight. Starting at chapter 2, of the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9. Uh, we're jumping back in. Uh, it's not a long text, but this text kind of is a transitional section. I, pu- I pulled it apart because I thought this is a really helpful text that deals with a few subjects that are really, really important for us to think about. We're on the heels of Hebrews chapter 1, where the author makes his bold claim. Jesus, um, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. If you'd be memorizing, he created everything. Jesus is the king over everything. He's more superior than prior revelation. He is the greatest revelation of the Father. And not only that, he's more, better, greater, bigger than angelic hosts. Now, we're going to revisit that tonight because the author now is jumping back into this to tell us why Jesus is still greater and better. All right. Remember the last time we, we were in Hebrews, it was at the section that we said, hey, don't drift. Don't drift. Remember, don't be, don't be caught out. Christianity is an uphill battle, and if you're not making your way uphill, you're sliding. You're backsliding, some would say. No, but Christianity is an uphill battle. Don't drift, the author begs you to, to not do. Why? Well, verses 5 through 8. For, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. In other words, he's saying, look, don't drift, don't fall away from the the truth of Christ because the angels, as great as they are, are not going to be the ones ruling and reigning in the next life. Jesus is. Verse 6. And now he's going to quote from Psalm chapter 8. He says, It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, really quickly here, let me just point a few things out as you're looking at the screen. Uh, Notice here that the word that 
And the word that's emphasized here is the word subjected. And that's the connection that he makes to Psalm chapter 8. You see that word subjected there. And you're going to see it again in the following verses. So remember that Hebrews is a sermon. You're reading a sermon in the book of Hebrews. And so the author says, look, now I want you to understand that Jesus is greater than the angels. They're not going to be the ones who oversee creation. They currently have a very important and very significant role. But Jesus is the one who is going to be overseeing everything. He's the one who, to whom it's been handed all of the authority, all of the power, all of the glory, all of the honor. But then, why does he quote Psalm chapter 8? In fact, by the way, take a look here. It looks like he doesn't know, well, let me try a different color here. It looks like he doesn't know what passage this is. It has been testified somewhere. It's kind of like something that I do, and I'm not quite sure the text will say, and Hebrews 2 or, you know, Ephesians 5 or somewhere in the Bible it says, oh, he's not doing that. <laughs> he's not saying, I forgot where the text is. He, he's aware what he's trying to do here, and he's going to do this all throughout the chapter or all, the, all throughout the book of Hebrews. He's going to say, look, the author of the book isn't as important than the fact that God himself is the author of all revelation. So he's downplaying the human author in order to highlight the divine author to say, look, God has written somewhere. God's the one who testified to this. And here in these verses here, this is Psalm 8. These first two verses here deal with who we are as people. God designed people uh, to be, to be the, the, vi the word is vi two words, vice regents, uh, to be overseers of creation. And so Psalm chapter 8 is a celebration of that. God, why would you think of us in this way? Why would you give us all this authority? Why would you give, it, um, give us the miracle of childbirth? You let us procreate and you let us oversee things and make computer chips and you know, design things like, like AI and spaceships and all these cool things. What is man that you even think of us? We're insignificant when you compare us to really anything else in the universe or a son of man that you care for him. The author uses this passage, but he doesn't talk about you and me. He starts out that way in quoting Psalm 8, but he's really making the point that really you made him Jesus, and that's who he's going to be talking about. Him, he says this is really fulfilled in Jesus, made him for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus was made as a baby and put in human flesh to be temporarily lower than them in position. You have crowned him, Jesus, with glory and honor, putting everything, and this is important, everything in subjection under Jesus' feet. So even though Psalm chapter 8 originally was about you and me, humanity, the author of Hebrews says, no, he, uh, Psalm chapter 8 actually is fulfilled completely and truly in Jesus Christ. So again, the key word there is subjected. Everything has been handed over to Jesus. When he died and was resurrected and then ascended to the right hand of God, Jesus was given all power and authority. In fact, you remember in Matthew chapter 28, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, right? You remember that. Here's what I want you to do with point number one. I want you to see this text and realize this isn't a reality for us somewhere there and then. This is a reality for us right here, right now. Point number one, recognize that Jesus is king right now. This very second, the moment you're writing this down is the moment you should recognize Jesus is king this very moment. And this is important. I think this is, this is part of the point the author of Hebrews is making. I hope you never do this, but if you were to go to a casino, uh, you would notice some features that are meant to distort your perception of reality. So if you go inside, you'll notice that a casino has no windows and it has no clocks. No windows, no clocks. A casino is meant to distort your perception of reality so that you stay longer and you play longer and you give them more of your money. House always wins. That's true. You never will beat the house. Uh, you might beat them once, but they're always going to win. That's how they stay in business. Don't, don't do it. It's not a smart thing. 
So they also, they, they, do, they do different things with design, lighting, and even clustering of, of different slot machines in order to focus your attention, not to the floor, not to the ceiling, but right on the machines. They use certain smells. They inject smells into the air that give you the sensation of excitement and excitability so that you want to engage in the, in the games themselves. They use all kinds of different psychological tricks to distort your perception of reality, or at least uh, help you to perceive it in a way that favors them and favors you giving them your money, distorting your perception of reality. Well, in, in the world that we live in, there is a real attempt by a, uh, an evil foe who wants to distort your perception of reality that Jesus is not king. Because even though the world has been subjected to him, everything has, there is a goal to say, no, that's really not the case. In fact, you're the king, you're the queen, you're the maker of your own destiny. The world is better than what Jesus himself offers. You know, the devil has that strategy, interrupt and distort the signals of reality. Because if you knew that Jesus was king, this very moment, that would change several things. Change a lot, of, a lot about the ways that you interact with the world around you. Take a look at verse five with me again. It was not to angels. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Here's something to note about that. Angels are far more powerful than you and I often realize. So I want you to realize, first of all, Jesus is king right now. So if he's better than the angels, don't go to them. Don't be tempted to pray to angels or get angel cards or angel tarot. Instead, turn to Jesus for help. Go to Jesus. He's the one who's able to reach down into your world and to be the help you need. All of you guys or many of you guys are going through finals right now. It's your favorite time of year. <laughs> finals. You love this time. And many of you are probably saying, I'm concerned about my grade. I don't want to miss out. I don't want to uh, fail my class. I, I need this for credit or whatever it is you're doing. You're, you might be tempted to say, I I'm going to turn to something or someone for that emotional stability, that support to get me through. Now, you and I aren't tempted to go to angels probably. But his audience, the author of Hebrews, was. In fact, uh, angels, again, are, are, pretty, are pretty awesome. And in fact, if you were reading the DBR with us, you read something in Daniel recently. Here's what it says in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel says, look, I lifted up my eyes and behold, a man clothed in linen. Okay, nothing spectacular so far. Dude wearing a, a, cotton, a cotton garment, not a big deal. But it gets better. Clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. Okay, he's flexing, got Gucci on. Fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. I don't know what that means. Just keep rolling. <laughs> That's not the point. His body was like barrel. It was radiance. And I think there even might be a sense here of like he's chiseled. He's like, ooh, chiseled barrel. His face, like the appearance of lightning. So brilliance and perhaps a bit scary. His eyes like flaming torches. I mean, when I look at you and I give you the dad look, that's one thing. But this guy, he's like, I, I don't know. This is crazy. Flaming torch. His arms and legs like the gleams of burnish, a gleam of burnished bronze. So he's radiant. Again, shiny, not brilliant uh, in, the, in the true sense of the word. Not brilliant as in smart. He's bright and shiny. So he's reflecting the glory of God here. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So his voice is not just the voice of one man. It's, com uh, cumbersome. it's comprehensively loud and overwhelming. Now, if you're having, you know, you're asleep and you hear uh, someone in your room and you wake up and this dude is there, you're probably going to be a little freaked out. You should be. You're about to die. <laughs> Someone is going to die, and it's not him. You're going to be taken out. In fact, this is why when most people encounter angels in Scripture, they're not like, oh, what's up, bro? Hook it up. Hook it up. You know, he's, you, they fall down, and they're worshiping the, the dude. 
And then the angel's like, no, 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 step back, bro. Get, get up. This is not, this is, you, you weren't worship the Lord, not me. And so this is what's happening is Daniel sees this. But he goes on a few verses later, and, and then, then he said to me, the angel, he says, Fear not, Daniel. I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now that's interesting because this is an angel saying, look, I was stuck over the area of Persia because the, the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. Who's he talking about? This is not a human he's talking about. He's talking about the spiritual realm with spiritual realities, angels who have this governance over areas. And he's saying, look, I was coming to you. God sent me to come answer your prayers. But as I was rolling up, the king of Persia and his minions stopped me in my tracks and I needed to call for backup. And that's when Michael, the chief prince, came and hooked it up. That's pretty crazy. You and I don't think that way. We don't think about angels in that way. But again, the Hebrew audience is like, yeah, these guys are dope. I want an angel on my side. I would love to have an angel with me when I'm taking my AP exam. Hey, tell me what's happening here. Like, these guys are, are, are amazing. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is still better than these guys. He's stronger, he's wiser, he's more powerful. So turn to Jesus for help. Don't go to the angels. Look at Jesus. He's better. If you're stressed out tonight, I'd, I mean, you don't have to think that angels are dope. You can say, though, if you believe Jesus is king, turn to him for help. He can support you. Let's go one layer deeper here. It's not just that we should turn to him for help. If we really want to see things different in our lives, we really should turn to Jesus for change. In verse 8, uh, verses 6 and 7, uh, again, he's quoting Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. And now you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Here's something I know that you think. You think the world needs to be different. I believe that too. You know that. I know that. We think thing, things need to really change soon. In fact, I'm so distraught that it's becoming commonplace that school shootings become like, okay, here we go again. Here's another, here's another wacko. And honestly, I, I, I struggle because on the one hand, I hate this kid that's shooting up people. And I hate the fact that their families are struggling because your friends are dying. And I hate the fact that if you go to a public school, you practice drills. You have to be trained on how to respond to an active shooter scenario. I hate that. I hate that. On the other hand, I look up to heaven and say, God, help. We clearly need help because our people are shooting each other. And, the, and, and you guys, you're living in that reality. See, I, I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, we do have this reality about going to school and, and you know, some dude can unleash on you. But it's not just your school. It's not just your schools. You know and I know that we live in a time and, 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 and season of life where we have to be on guard everywhere. Not even your church is safe. It's a sad reality that we have to even have gatekeepers. I'm grateful for gatekeepers. I'm grateful for people in this room that have guns on them, hopefully to protect us and not use against us. I'm grateful for that. But the fact is that we have to have that is a kind of a loss already. We live in a world where we understand changes need to happen. How do, we, how, how do we deal with this? How do we understand the world around us? Well, we need Jesus, guys. There's no one who can do what needs to happen in our world apart from Jesus Christ. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. We need Jesus. I know sometimes we throw that around like a joke, like y'all need Jesus. Not what I'm doing here. We need Jesus. Your friends need Jesus. Guys, uh, let me just say this as strongly and as gently as I can say, you need to tell your friends about Jesus. The same people that are struggling, they may not tell you, they may not tell you that they're having an issue, but they need to know that there is a God that loves them 
that was willing to die on the cross for their sins, and you have that message. You want to see change in your life? You want to see school shootings become a thing of the past? Jesus is the change that we're looking for. You know, we have this thing called Revival coming up, RWE. You know why it's called Revival? It's not because it's a dope name. It is. Uh, but because we want to see Jesus bring revival to our souls, to our schools, to our cities. We want to see Jesus, who alone can do this, to bring revival to our nation, to help people awaken to the reality that there is right and there is wrong, and we are all accountable to the God of heaven and of earth. And unless we're in Jesus, unless we have his righteousness, we are all doomed. That's the truth that can save people and change their lives. That's the kind of thing that can change someone to be from being an active shooter kind of person to saying, no, I need to be you know, reconciled to the God who made me. And far be it for me that I should ever commit such an atrocity. Look, Jesus is king right now. And if that's true, you turn to him for help and you turn to him for change. You can't change the heart of an active shooter. You can't change the heart of someone who has it out for you or anyone else. You have no access to that person's heart. But you know who does? King Jesus does. And if you believe that Jesus is king, and it's as clear as day in scripture, one of the best things we can do is pray for our people, pray for our brothers, our sisters, pray for our friends, pray for our schools, pray for our teachers, and beg God to bring revival. Jesus is king right now. Let's go to him and ask him to do some, something impossible. As we continue on in chapter 2, verse 8, I want to highlight something that the author of Hebrews highlights. He recognizes, and, and maybe you feel this already too right now, he recognizes that, hey, Jesus is king right now. But it's pretty clear that if he is king, he's not doing what he should be doing. If Jesus is king, why are things the way they are? It's like, it's like okay, if Jesus has all power and all authority, then why are things so incredibly broken? Why would Jesus let the active shooter go in the first place? Why would, why would Jesus, who's all good and all powerful and all the things that we say, if that's true, then why is it so clear that the world seems to be in shambles? Well, the author of Hebrews acknowledges that. He says, now in putting everything, and this is the second part of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. <laughs> In other words, Jesus is the sovereign king of everything. There's nothing that he does not control. However, at the present moment, or at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Explain, por favor. He's recognizing everything was given to Jesus. Jesus is not using that power to govern everything like you and I would expect. What's happening here? Well, He's identifying something that we've already said, that Christians endure worship by focusing on the now and not yet aspects of the kingdom. Here's a simple point for you to take a look at. Uh, the but, in verse 9, we're going to come back to this in, 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 in point 3, but you need to see this now. He delays for a purpose. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that, purpose clause, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Again, we're going to come back to that in, in point three. But just know right now that when Jesus delays justice, it is intentional. When Jesus doesn't flex his power and destroy his enemies, that is on purpose. Point number two, understand that Jesus' delay of justice is intentional. It is his 
purposeful, providential plan for humanity. He's doing something with it. He has a plan and a purpose, and our job is to acknowledge that. He's causing delays for our good and for his glory. One of the apps I love using all the time is Waze. I use Waze like nine times out of ten, even if I'm going to a place I know I, I can get to easily. Why? Well, because Waze does this marvelous job of saving me time everywhere I go. Waze will reroute me around traffic and around hazards so that I get home in the most efficient way possible, Min minimal traffic. And now I know that. But there was a time when I did not trust Waze. In fact, it was not too long ago. I was heading home with my family in the van carrying all six of us. Six? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven, right? Because I'll have five. I have five kids. Seven of us. Taking seven of us home. That's a lot of us. Sort of basketball team. Taking seven of us home. And Waze was like, oh, turn this way. And I'm like, that's the long, that's the long way. What are you doing, Waze? Garbage. So I hit my phone. I said, I'm not doing what you're telling me to do. I'm going to just keep going my way. I can get home faster. And then it happened. I was turning on Marguerite, you know, next to the lake. I was turning on Marguerite, and I was next to the lake. And then I saw the red lights, a pile of cars that were just ahead of me, all stopped. And then I looked at Waze, and I could swear she was like, ha, 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 <laughs> laughing at me. I was so mad. I'm like, man, what am I doing? I could, I, we could have been home by now. Instead, we had to wait an extra 15 minutes because of this accident that we had to be rerouted and go back the whole way around again. And then I just thought to myself, this is what I get for ignoring Waze. She knows better. She knows better. This is why I have her out there. So now I listen to Waze, and even though she takes me the long way, I trust that I am saving time by actually investing more time into my route. Does that make sense? Now, if I can trust that, and if you can trust that in your little Waze app, which is, you know, smart, but still dumb, comparatively speaking, how is it that we struggle so much to trust God who knows so much more than Waze? And really, that's the rub for us. God doesn't do things when you think God should do them. In fact, God often will delay you in order to save you. God does things in your life, even though you don't understand it. And you might be like, well, he doesn't know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. God does this so that you will learn to trust him. And now I trust Waze. I follow Waze. I do what Waze tells me, even if it's in my own neighborhood, because I know Waze knows better. God knows better, and he can direct your life if you will let him. You could choose, like I did, to ignore God's instructions and be like, oh, I'm going to turn right instead of left. This is the faster way home. And you're going to be sadly mistaken when God looks from heaven and says, well, I told you to go the other way. I put it in my word. Do this instead of that. And now you're paying the price for that. Hopefully you learn. Jesus' delay of justice works very similarly. We want the bad guy to be punished now. We want Thanos to be, you know, to be destroyed but there wouldn't be, you know, 22 movies in Avengers if we got it done in one movie, right? That's what made the movie really good. You were waiting for that justice to culminate in the destruction of Thanos, but that took some time. And that made Endgame all the more satisfying. God's Endgame is far better than Avengers. And God's Endgame requires right now a delay of his justice. Everything is subjected to him, but he's not exercising that that power and that authority in the ways that you and I would hope. But here's what that means. Even though he delays, Jesus is not blind to sin, death, and suffering. And this is hard, guys. This is really, really, really hard. But let me just give you some text for this because here's what this means. If Jesus is not blind to sin, death, and suffering, that means in your pain, when God sends you through the valley of the shadow of death, he's doing it fully aware of what it's doing to you. Jesus knows. 
It's in the text. Let's take a look at a couple verses. Uh, first, Proverbs 15, 3. It says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. He's keeping watch on the evil and the good. He's obviously aware of all that's taking place. And of course, one of the best, uh, one of the best stories that are in, that's in the scriptures about this is out of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where uh, Joseph's brothers come before him. They bow down before him after having uh, sold him into slavery and trying to kill him. Joseph says this, as for you, you guys meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Notice that there are two wills in Genesis 50, verse 10 here. Excuse me, verse 20. There's two wills. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Two wills are acting on the same event. God's will wins. He's aware. And not only is he aware, he's working through every single one of the situations that you're going through. You ever notice that when there's a disaster in the country, our presidents will visit that disaster area? I mean, for the last several presidents, when there's an issue, you know, there's a destruction, there's a tornado, there's, there's flooding, the presidents will quickly, uh, will quickly uh, get on Air Force One and travel to that area. And usually, they'll talk to the people and say comforting words, you know, I'm sorry this happened, we're resilient, we're going to get this together, and we're going to do da-da-da-da. Why do they do that? Well, obviously, photo op is one. They look like a compassionate president. But I, if I'm thinking the best about these guys, there is something to be said about, hey, Someone's jumping in, you're seen, you're cared for, your nation's going to do whatever we can, the Red Cross is on the way, Samaritan's person, whoever else, we're going to send support to help protect you and make sure that we build you back better than you were before. <laughs> build back better, that wasn't my intention. Okay, uh, there's a point there to, for the president to say, look, most powerful man in the country, or even arguably the world, I see you, we care for you, you're in our prayers and in our thoughts, we're going to take care of you. That's comfort to that. I mean, if something happened to us in California, we had this massive earthquake, it'd be kind of cool if, you know, President so-and-so walked in and was like, hey, we're, we, we, the nation sees you. We like you guys and hope you don't die, California. We like you. <laughs> I would be comforted, mildly, but comforted. Um, we should be able to see God saying to us, look, I see you. I see your pain and have some kind of comfort to that. Jesus himself is not blind to sin, death, and suffering. In fact, I can, I can add to this too. He doesn't, he's not only not blind to it, Jesus, and this is a side point. I, I have this in my notes, but let me just say this real quick. Jesus didn't just say, I see it. He entered it. Okay, remember that. He didn't just say, I see your pain and suffering. He entered it. Jesus, this is what we celebrate in Christmas. Jesus, born as a baby, he enters human flesh in order to do what? Verse 9 of our text tonight, to suffer and die for us. This is the whole purpose Jesus came to suffer at the hands of sinners so that you and I might be made right with the Father. This is his whole scheme. It's not a scheme, this is his whole plan. So what that ultimately means for you and me then is that his delay of justice is not a denial of justice. His delay is not a denial, which actually is the opposite of a very popular phrase. You guys might have heard it. Justice delayed is justice denied. It's a phrase, uh, it's a phrase that often means if you don't get a speedy trial, if there's not speedy justice, then you might as well not have justice. If someone came and murdered your family and you know, they're on death row and they're not murdered for 40 years, you would say, well, that's not justice. He didn't get what he deserved. And that's the mindset behind this. And I would agree with that as far as it goes. If you're a human, from a human's perspective, justice delayed is justice denied because we're only working with 80 some odd years, give or take. But when we say justice de delayed is justice denied, uh, we're not thinking about God's perspective, right? But we should. 
Here's what scripture says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. His delay is not his denial. God's got justice in his sights, just not yet. He's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, that's great. We all celebrate, we applaud for that because that's what we wanna see. Verse 10 though, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It is gonna come quickly and unexpectedly. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God's coming and he's bringing a very heavy sword. He's coming, he's gonna take out his enemies. But he's not slow, he's right on time. Just not on your time. We continue. Take a look at Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all know that one. That's one of our favorite verses. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Check this out. This was to show God's righteousness. And this is the important imperative phrase here. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. In the past, God would look the other way, so to speak, when he would see egregious sins. Think about King David. Did King David get what he deserved when he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah? Did not. God did not give David justice. David and Bathsheba should have both died. Of course, you might remember in the story, true story, that God did take their baby, but he let David live. Anyone who's looking at God's word would say, well, you're looking, that's not justice, God. You should have given him justice. And so Romans 3 acknowledges God and his divine forbearance and his patience passed over former sin. He overlooked it. In fact, that's partly what the Passover was about. He would pass over sin based on the death of another, the lamb. And this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God's justice has been executed first, chapter one, in Jesus' death on the cross. That's justice, which means if you put your trust in Jesus, God's justice has been finished in Christ on your behalf. But as you know and I know, there's lots of people that are not gonna bow the knee to Jesus, at least not willingly. Justice is not met for them yet. Delay of justice is not a denial of justice. One quick thing, if God were to give all of us justice immediately upon infraction, what would that mean for our existence? Well, none of us would be here. We would die really early in our infancy. Jesus delays. He's not blind to our sin, death, and suffering, and his delay is not a denial of his justice. It's purposeful. It's intentional. What's his reason then? Let's go back to verse 9 and wrap this up here. Verse 9, it says this, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And by the way, you should be noticing here that he's referencing Psalm 8. He's unpacking Psalm 8. He's teaching Psalm 8. We see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of, because of the suffering of death. So that purpose clause, by the grace of God, he, Jesus, might taste death for everyone else. That's called penal substitutionary atonement. He dies on our behalf. We receive the benefit of being made right with God. 
But I wanted, I wanted to notice something here. You see that top phrase? We see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. How long is that little while? How long is the little while? He was made for a little while lower than the How long was that? Jesus was alive for 30 some odd years, right? 33 is a common guess. 33 years is a little while in God's economy. Now, if you told me, Pastor Rod, in a little while, I'm going to give you $10,000. I said, great, great. How long? 35 years. <laughs> a little while, I'm going to give you $10,000. I'm just, oh, that's not exciting anymore. <laughs> I'm not, I don't want your $10,000. Give it to me now. Well, God's economy, he looks at this and he says, for a little while, made lower than the angels. 30 some odd years. And of course, we're talking about Jesus, who was crowned with glory and honor. Notice not only the time frame, but also notice the vehicle to the reward. Jesus was said for a little while, lower than the angels in his position. His person was always greater because he's God in flesh. Positionally, lower than the angels for just a little bit. But then he was crowned with glory and honor. How? Because of the suffering of his death. So for 35 years, 33 years, Jesus was in a humble state. He was given over to humility and to suffering in order that he might do something like taste death for us so that people can be brought to salvation through him. This is something I think is amazing and wonderful and awesome and should encourage you. I said this, Christians endure hardship by focusing on the now and not yet aspects of Jesus' kingdom. Now he is king, but it is not yet fully realized. Someday he's going to affect full and total justice. Until then, we need to realize that his salvation, which is offered to all of us in this room and your friends, we have an opportunity to spread the message of Christ's forgiveness. Think about this. God could use you and your faithfulness to share the gospel with people to turn someone who has murderous intentions against you, your family, your school. Think about that. Someday, I trust we're going to hear that testimony. I don't know when. I pray that it's soon. But I trust that someday we're going to hear that. And God could use you for that. The idea here, though, is that God has purposeful timing and purposeful intentions behind all the things that he temporarily tolerates. Now and not yet. We're seizing the opportunity to see more saved. Point number three, I put it like this. Trust that Jesus' timing and purposes are always good. His timing, longer than we prefer. Purposes, wants to see people saved. And that's a good thing, even if right now we don't like that. I have a least favorite traffic light. I know it's silly. I know it's silly. But I'm a pretty efficient guy. At least I like to think so. I, I time things. I... I it takes me approximately 22 minutes to get from home to church in the mornings. And that's if I hit the average number of red lights. When I leave home, or leave for home, it takes me approximately 19 minutes. Why? Well, we'll explain why later. But uh, one of the things that I absolutely hate about modern-day traffic lights is that they seem to turn red, turn red for no reason. Like, there's no one there. There's no one at the stop walk. I'm just sitting there like a moron, just waiting for nothing. And there's one light that gets me more often than not, and I hate it. Let me introduce you to Beckenham. <laughs> so you see here, Beckenham is that one next to Laguna Woods. That's right. So Laguna, Laguna Hills High School, you know, you know the one I'm talking about, right? Laguna Hills, you see that one? It's right on PDV. As you're going down PDV, Beckenham. Beckenham hates you. 
And here's how I know why. Beckenham is that, is that light. And tonight, as I go home, it's going to hit me. I know it. I know it. Beckenham will turn red, and there's, like, there's no one on the road in the entire world, and it's red. And I'm just sitting there thinking, what am I doing in my life? Why am I here? Why is, this, why is this light red? And so then I start postulating about what if I ran for city council? Maybe I could find a way to update the lights. Thinking, if it's on a timer, why are they, why are they not using real-time data? Like, we have ways, and ways is telling you, why can't they just use that ways information and then use that to program the lights? I don't know the answer to that. But here's what I do know. If you were to add up the average amount of time you spend at a red light in your whole life, Guess how much time you're spending there. If you said 122 days, you would be right. If you live near Beckenham, it's twice that. <laughs> it's twice. <laughs> it's funny because in those times I'm at that stoplight, I have to preach to myself. I have to tell myself the truth. Like, Rod, God is sovereign. God, is, God knows the light takes forever. The question is, how are you waiting? Are you waiting in a way that would please him? Most of the time I have to answer no. <laughs> I'm just frustrated. I want to get home. And Beckenham stands in my way as usual. But here's what scripture says. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision, excuse me, is from the Lord. Uh, if you think about rolling a piece of dice uh, or a uh, paradise or a triplet of dice, dicen, die, dienson. If you roll some dienson, you might find they roll, they could come out to like eight or 12 or whatever. The scripture says Jesus determines how much the dicen say. His number. The Lord determines how much they end up. I know that's not a real word. I'm just joking. <laughs> Don't think I'm dumb. Um, the Lord determines that. And if he determines the randomized things like rolling die, well, surely he controls everything else, right? That's what scripture says. Uh, and that's especially true when it comes to our waiting. Okay, pay attention to the screen. Though <laughs> trust that Jesus' timing and purposes are always good, and here's my first point. Though See it coming? Though, though, just keep looking. Though he moves slowly. See what I did there? See what I, how long do you think that was? <laughs> that probably felt like 3,000 years. That was 15 seconds. Seriously. 15 seconds. And I made the point here. God moves slowly in ways that we often just get so frustrated with. Like, God, I want to be married. I want to have a family. I want to be done with high school. I want to do this, that, or the other. I wish I were not this instead of that. And we just wring our hands and go, like, I just want it to go faster. And God says, wait, wait. God's timing is not our timing. <laughs> Remember, he said Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels. And that little while was 33 years but there's a, good, there's a goodness to this. Do you ever notice a difference between food that you heat up in the microwave versus food that you heat up in the crock pot or the oven? When something is slow cooked, it falls off the bone. It's like you look at it and it falls off the bone. You don't even have to chew it. In fact, when something is, something is slow cooked, you just shove it down your throat. You don't have to chew it because it's already falling off the bone. It it's already pre-digested. That's... <laughs> Whether it's ribs or briskets, you just throw some good barbecue. That's why I love baby back ribs. Tender, juicy. Like again, you barely have to chew it. Shove it in your mouth, drink some water, you're good. 
But if you try to do some of that stuff with barbecue in a microwave, you're going to have a very different experience. It's going to come out chewy. And you try to chew it, you're going to choke and die. <laughs> God's time frame is often far slower than what we prefer to. In fact, in fact, if you think about Abraham and Sarah, God made a promise to Abraham, Abe, you're going to have a son. Anybody remember how old he was when he got that promise? Let's just call it 75. Okay. Now, knowing what you already know and what I just taught, when did God deliver on that promise to give them a, a child? Anyone say 25 years later? 25 years later. God was not, God was not in a rush. And, and by the way, you know, they got this picture of them looking old. It's because they were. I mean, they were ancient. Imagine your great-grandpa having a baby. <laughs> this is kind of like what's happening. I mean, he's 75 and 100 years old, basically. We're talking about old people. And by the way, if you think back to Genesis chapter 3, when God's issuing the curse to Adam and Eve, he also says, hey, but there's someone coming who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Rough and nerdy. How long did it take for that person to come and do what God said? Let's just call it 6,000, yeah, thousands of years. Thousands of years. In other words, his timing is often very different than ours. And you as a young person, you want things to be fast. And I do too. You know, we're all trained by Amazon Prime. We're all trained by the instantaneous nature of our messages. And our, we, we, we live in such an amazing time. It's wonderful. It's awesome. At the same time, it kind of ruins us because now we're very impatient and the, the thought of even waiting for something good is just really hard for us. So I need you to understand that you know, God's timing and purposes are always good. You need to recognize that God's timing is often not yours and you need to trust him while you wait. Prepare to wait for God's hand to move at the right time, not before and not after and probably not your time. Verse nine again, the purpose again, it's a little while lower than the angels. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, because of the suffering of death, because of the suffering of death, because of the suffering of death. Jesus cross came before his crown. He moved slowly, yes, and he often includes suffering. You need to trust him with his timing and trust him with your difficult situations, which are going to be many, young person. There are going to be many. In fact, when you graduate and you go to college, I want you to hear me now. I don't want you running away from Jesus because, oh man, it was just too hard. I was suffering too much for the sake of Christ. You got to expect this. God has promised that if you're in him, you will suffer for being a Christian. And we're, I'm just talking about common suffering that we're all going through right now, like the you know, natural disasters and the school shootings or whatever else we're dealing with. That's, that's true for all of us. But Christians in particular have a special kind of suffering set apart for them. You need to be ready for that. God's going to do it, but he's got a good and wise purpose in it. And you're going to say, God, take this out of my life right now. I want it to be over with. And God's going to say, not yet. Wait, trust me, be patient. Back to one of the attitudes you should have when you go through suffering. First Peter 4.13 says, rejoice, especially if it's the suffering that comes of being a Christian. If you're going and suffering because you're in Christ, great, rejoice in that because not only are you sharing in his suffering, you're gonna share in his glory. James piggybacks on that in James chapter one. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
When you go through a trial, this is a good thing because it's doing something. He says, however, there is a way to shortcut this process. If you try to life hack your way through God's trials and, and tribulations in your life, he says, you can actually shortcut the process and ruin it. Did you, did you see this? And, and verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it have its process in your life. In other words, when God sends stuff your way, don't just try to get around it and try to, oh, I'm just going to try to Jesus juke this and get out of here. I'm not going to get out of this by just pretending it doesn't happen. I'm not going to have this rotten attitude during it. He says, let it have its full effect. Let suffering and trials draw you to him, causing you to trust him and love him and know that his timing is better than your timing. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trust the process. His timing and purposes are always good, even though, according to your time frame, he moves slowly, and mine too, though he includes suffering. These are all good things that he has dealt for us. How do you endure hardship? Well, you do it by focusing on the now and not yet, the now and not yet of Jesus' kingdom. And, and while we wait, we need to seize the opportunity of seeing more people saved. And that would include you in the room who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. I would love for you to really consider why not? What would hold you back? What's worth your life? Second thing I would say is if you haven't signed up for RWE yet, I would love to have you there. Um, these are going to be some of my, God willing, highest energy, best sermons I've ever preached. So help me God. You know I want to bring the best for you. And I'd love to have all of you there and your friends. I want all of you there. As you prepare for Christmas, and I know this wasn't really a Christmas sermon, I want you to remember Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any of the presents you're going to get. Jesus is better than any of the family members you're going to interact with. Everything that's good in this life is like the Costco sampler to the best life that Jesus brings. And Costco samplers are great. I love them. Are we even doing those anymore? I don't know if Costco does that anymore, COVID and all those things. But <laughs> Jesus is better. Jesus is better during Christmas and your new year. Jesus is better than your high school years. Jesus is better than your sports team. Jesus is better than everything that's what it has to offer. Remember that as you go through your Christmas season and wrap it up. Love you guys. I'm so grateful for this year with you. I'm grateful that we have... 2021, just about under our belt, and I can't wait to share 2022 with you. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of great things in all of our future, but regardless, whatever that is, we're trusting him. We're looking toward him, and we're going to let Jesus lead us, and so help us, God. We're going to make an impact on your campuses and even in your small groups. We want to see Jesus have ripple effects across every aspect of your life. So praying for you guys. Hope you guys have a good small group tonight. Let me pray for you as I dismiss you. God.